Ephesians 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. Hear now God's Word. And you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Maybe seated. I don't know what your week was like this week, but mine had some significant challenges and stresses, and it is very easy to become overwhelmed by this life, both by the internal and the external struggles. I can certainly affirm that the flesh is weak. No doubt the Christians at Ephesus were facing all kinds of challenges, stresses, struggles as well along with many fears. Thus the Apostle is writing to them and to us to instruct them and to instruct us as well, and to remind them and remind us of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be in Christ. And so he lays down a critical theological foundation and calls for some very practical applications. And I want to do the same today. This is a sermon that to help you get a right theology, to add to your understanding of the teaching of the Bible, that, in, that basic foundational instruction. We're going to be talking today about the doctrine of the union, our union with Christ. It's important to think systematically, to think about these issues, to get them in our heads so that they can then drop down into our hearts and impact the way we live. This is not just an academic exercise, but theology is always about our coming to to have a perspective on whatever the subject is, the same perspective that God has. What does He say about us? What does He say about Christ? What does He say about our, our relationship to Christ? And our goal is to conform our thinking to his thinking. That's the, that's the goal of theology, not to just write big books or study it or debate it, but to come to that place where having embraced it, it changes the way we see God, the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves, the way we see other people, and how we live. And so for me, this passage came at a very good time. And it is a source of powerful encouragement. I hope it will be the same for you today. My time for sermon preparation was cut short this week due to circumstances, and so let me offer both credit and thanks to the work of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones again in his sermon on this passage. It was very stimulating and helped me see deeper and further into this text. And so much of what I'll be sharing with you is based upon the insights I received from his thinking on this. We have already, of course, come to consider, we did last week, 
that important word that appears in verse 4, the word but. We have laid out before us this transition from despair and hopelessness to hope. Our condition, if you'll recall, is described in verses 1 through 3. Dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the rest. And so it is against this dark, this bleak backdrop that comes this unexpected ray of light, a ray of hope and promise. Not only do we see the hopeful word but, but the very next word is, is just is, is critical here. It's, it's, it, but what? But God. That is the hope. That is what makes this powerful. When we were dead and we could do nothing, God did what only He can do. He, we're told, is rich in mercy. He has great love for us. Sometimes I think, I know I struggle with this sometimes, I think maybe God's a little stingy, that He's a little miffed at me, mad at me, and he may begrudgingly give me things, but he's uh, perhaps aloof. That's a false theology. That needs to change. God, The Bible says, my father, your father, is rich in mercy. He has plenty of it. He's not going to run out. He has an abundance of mercy. Tons of it. And he has great, magnificent love. For you. He wants your good. In fact, He demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much He loves you. He gave His only begotten Son for you. It's as though you were the only one. That's how much He loves you. So God, rich in mercy, has great love, and in His wisdom... He is kindly disposed toward us. And so it was the power, the love, and the wisdom of God coming together that caused our rescue and our salvation. And while we should be amazed by this, it is important that we consider exactly what God did for us. And there are three things mentioned in this text. Number one, He made us alive together with Christ. Second, He raised us up together with Christ. And third, He made us to sit in the heavenly places with Christ. Every bit of this is His doing and not ours. This is true for every genuine Christian. Now, this is really primary to the gospel. It embraces all of the Christian life. It's all ours from the beginning, like a deposit that has been made in the bank for you. We must now proceed to draw on that deposit if we are to appropriate its various parts and to grow in both our comprehension as well as our apprehension 
of just exactly what it is that we've been given in Christ. This is what it means to be Christian. Not what you and I are attempting or striving to do. Rather, these are all the things that are done for us by God our Father. Now, there are two ways of looking at this, and both of them must come together if we are to fully apprehend God's work on our behalf. Paul has already prayed for the Ephesians in chapter 1. The end of that chapter, starting in verse 18, he prayed that the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at the heavenly, in the heavenly places, far above all principality, power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Remember, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we were under all those principalities and powers. But when God raised Christ from the dead, he overcame all those powers that were against us, and he seated him in the heavenlies, and guess what he does for us? He raises us, us up, he sets us free from those principalities and powers, and he seats us in the heavenly places. These truths have application both now and in the future. Some mistakenly think this work of God is strictly future, something that we're waiting to have happen when we die and go to heaven. There is coming a time, they say, and of course it is true, when we will be resurrected and glorified and we will live with Him forever and we will enter fully into His glory. That's true. But Paul seems to be more concerned to let these Christians know what has already happened to them in their current circumstances. What has already happened to you in your current circumstances. He wants them to know what God is doing for them right now. He makes this point in verse 5 when he parenthetically says, By grace you have been saved. It has already taken place. You've already been rescued. You've already been united to Christ. These are things that have, have already taken place. What God did to the Lord Jesus Christ in a physical sense, that is, raised Him from the dead and seated Him in the heavenly places, He has already done for us spiritually. He has begun that work. The same power that did this for Jesus has done and is doing it for us as well. Because we are uni united to Christ, everything that has happened to Him happens to us. We are united to Christ in His death, in His resurrection, and in His ascension. The word but sets before us a complete contrast to what we were and what we are now. How did all that happen? Together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up together with Christ, and He made us sit together with Christ in the heavenlies. Our union with Christ is one of the most spectacular doctrines of the Bible and one of the most critical. 
Romans chapter 5 provides a more detailed explanation of this truth, though it is found in many, many other places as well. But both Roman Catholic and Anglican theology has leaned toward the idea that this is some final achievement of only the greatest saints. But they say it is not for the ordinary Christian. This is a serious mistake. And it robs many Christians of one of the truths that is vital for victorious living. Dr. Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, This doctrine of our union with Christ should not come at the end of Christian doctrine. It should come at the beginning, where the apostle himself puts it. And so there are two senses in which we are joined or united to Christ, and both are important. First, there is the federal, that's a theological term that is used, or we could just as easily say the covenantal sense of our union with Christ. This is the teaching of Romans 5, 12 through 21. Adam was the covenant head of the human race. He represented all of us. Let me read a portion of that passage from Romans, starting in verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, that is Adam, Judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, Christ, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, Adam, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, the second Adam. We were in Adam, thus in Adam's fall we sinned all. What happened to Adam happened to us. Likewise, Christ as the second Adam is also a covenant head, a federal head. Adam was the first man, Jesus the second man. Jesus is the representative, think of it this way, of the new humanity. What happened to him, therefore, happened to those who are in him, connected to him, in covenant with him, bound to him, married to him. That's the first sense of our union with Christ. The second type of union with Christ is something called the mystical or the vital union. And we have several examples of these two types of union in Scripture. In John 15:5, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. This is a picture of both the objective and the vital, the covenantal the, the, the physical bonding of the, the, the vine and the branch, as well as the vital as the sap, the life-giving sap binds the two together. They are organically one, not just mechanically one. At the end of Ephesians 1, Paul says that our union with Christ is comparable to the way the various parts of the body are one. Again, a picture of both the objective and the vital mystical union. The life-flowing blood going through the entire body, not just one part of the body, but all the parts of the body. And then finally, in the fifth chapter of Ephesians, 
we also see that marriage, uh, see marriage where there is also both the objective union and the vital and mystical union. We can be legally married. We can be in covenant. That's objective. We sign the marriage license. We have the ceremony. We pronounce them husband and wife. Legally, there is a a change. The, The two have been joined together in covenant. But marriage should also go beyond that and include something more organic. As the Bible says, the two become one flesh. So too, when we are united to Christ, we, we're united both covenantally and objectively, and also vitally and mystically. Therefore, what happens to Jesus Christ happens to us. This is how we're saved. That's how important this is. Without it, you're not. We get no benefit from Christ except by our union with Him. John says, and of his fullness we have all received. So Paul's emphasis is that whereas we were dead, we are now alive. We were in Adam and dead, now we're in the second Adam and alive. No benefit can be mine until God's wrath is satisfied. For I am under that wrath and under the control of my own lust, as well as under the control of the God of this world, so Christ took upon himself our nature and our sins, and then he received the punishment, the wrath that was due to us, he received on our behalf. The substitutionary work of Christ. He stood in our place. So Christ, again, took upon himself our nature and our sins and received the punishment that was due to us. The wrath of God was poured out upon Christ. That is the entire meaning of Christ's death on the cross. 1 Corinthians 5.21, For He made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore in all things... He, Jesus, had to be made like His brethren, us, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Why? In order to make propitiation, which is the abatement of wrath, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 1 John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let me paraphrase. He sent His Son to take away the wrath that was due to us. But Christ not only died and was buried, He rose again. God raised Him from the dead and seated Him in the heavenly places. Romans 6, 3-5, Or do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death, therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. United to Christ in His death, united to Christ in His life, for if we've been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. 
If you are in Christ, then you are no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. You are no longer separated. You're no longer cut off from God. You are no longer spiritually dead. You have been united to the Son, the eternal life of the Son. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so as we begin to grasp this vital truth, I'd like to suggest it'll set you free. If you're not free, if you're in bondage to sin, if you're overly burdened about the circumstances of your life and and have no hope, then you have not grasped this vital truth. It will change your life. It empowers us to overcome. Just think of the burden and the weight of sin. What does our union with Christ do with that? Romans 8.1, there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, we're not hoping to be forgiven. We're no longer hoping to satisfy the demands of God's law to justify ourselves before Him. We are already there. We have been made alive. Now, we have not yet received a new body or a new brain. Looking forward to those things. But I'll tell you what we do have is we have a new heart and a new disposition. We have a new direction. And we do have a new power working with us, within us, to guide these broken faculties of the body and the brain. We have truth, we have new thoughts, new passions. We use our hands and feet for things we didn't use them for before. We use our mouths to bless instead of to curse. So, for example, Paul will apply this in chapter 4 where he tells us, and be kind to one another and forgive one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Are you in Christ? So it turns out that, the, that most of our problems are the result of our failure to recognize, number one, the depth of our sin. We tend to trivialize our sin, not take it seriously. Yeah, I'm sorry for that. Yeah, I'm sorry for that. To not really take it to heart, the seriousness of our sin, nor do we take to heart the glory of our salvation. We don't understand how bad we were, and we don't understand how good Christ has made us. And that's where most of our problems are. If you and I begin to grasp the reality of what we are taught in these first few verses of Ephesians 2, I promise you, your life will be transformed. But if we yawn at this, 
If the news has a dull reception, then you will continue in your depression and your anxiety. It is impossible to truly hear, receive, and believe these truths and remain unaffected. You have been united to Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up together with Christ. He has seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. John says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You see the practical application of this theology? To change your perspective about who you are, about how you're to see yourself. You're to see yourself the way God sees you, in Christ. Yeah, but this is going on. Yes, it is. It's going on, and God is above every bit of that. God is using every bit of that. If you will recognize that work. If you will go before Him and thank Him for what He's done for you and how He has empowered you to change and to grow. But it takes a serious commitment. And Paul's telling the Ephesians and he's telling us, no matter what's going on in the world, no matter what's going on in your life, if these truths sink in. See, I'm afraid sometimes they don't. They're sitting on the surface. Theology is not a hobby for the theologically inclined. Unfortunately, it is for for the theologically inclined, a hobby sometimes. But true theology is about changing our lives, coming to think the way God thinks about everything. And lo and behold, all things are new. Oh, I look at that. I look at my marriage new. I look at my children different. I look at my money different. I look at my work different. I look at a rainy day different. I look at my trials differently. I look at my struggles differently. I look at pain differently. I look at suffering differently. I look at the joys. I remember one person telling me years ago one time when they were converted, they said the food tastes better, the air smells better, the sun is brighter. That's what it means to be in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you today and praise you for the awesome gift of salvation in Christ. We have too often been ignorant or dull regarding the importance and power of what it means for us to be in Him. It shows in our depressed and defeated lives and in our broken relationships, we are too often overcome by the circumstances of life and crushed under the feet of Satan and of the world. Lift us up today. Open our eyes to see who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. I ran across a brief article Uh, by John Piper called The Stupendous Reality of Being in Christ.
Christ Jesus. And I just want to read this short piece to you. Being in Christ Jesus is a stupendous reality. It is breathtaking what it means to be in Christ. United to Christ. Bound to Christ. If you are in Christ, listen to what it means for you. And he has 13 things here. I'm going to be very quick. Number one, in Christ Jesus, you were given grace before the world was created. 2 Timothy 1.9. He gave us grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Number two, in Christ Jesus, you were chosen by God. For Ephesians 1.4. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Number three, you were loved by God with an inseparable love. Romans 8, 38-39, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Number four, in Christ you were redeemed and forgiven. Ephesians 1, 7, in Christ... We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Number five, in Christ you are justified. For our sake, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Justification by faith. Number six, in Christ you have become a new creation. If anyone is in Christ... He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all has become new. Galatians 3.26 In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Number seven, in Christ you, as we've already read, been seated in the heavenly places. In Christ Jesus, number eight, all the promises of God are yes and amen. 2 Corinthians 1.20 Number nine, in Christ Jesus you are being sanctified and made holy. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to the sanctified or holy in Christ Jesus. Number ten, everything you need in Christ will be supplied. Philippians 4, 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Number eleven, in Christ Jesus the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds where? In Christ Jesus. Number 12, in Christ Jesus you have eternal life for the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 13, And in Christ Jesus you will be raised from the dead at his coming. 1 Corinthians 15.22 For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All those united to Adam in the first humanity die. All those united to Christ in the new humanity rise to live again. How do we get into Christ? At the unconscious and decisive level, it is God's sovereign work. For God, from God, you are in Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1.30. But at the conscious level of our own action, it is through faith. Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, Ephesians 
the life we live in union with his death, and life we live by the faith of the Son of God. We are united to his death and resurrection through faith. This is a wonderful truth, he says. Union with Christ is the ground of everlasting joy. Oh, and it's free. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our Redeemer and our Mediator, without whom we have no standing with you. Indeed, we have been washed by his blood, and though our sins were as scarlet, we are now white as snow. For his sake alone, we can stand in your presence. We can know the assurance of your pardon and the pleasure of your countenance. And so, O Lord, as we go forth from this place, having met with you and having again worshipped in the assembly of your people, we delight and rejoice in your presence. And we also pray that your grace will now be evident in us, so that we might glorify you and serve you acceptably with reverence and fear, perfect in us that which is lacking and increase our faith. And now we gladly go outside the camp to be with Christ, to bear his reproach, knowing that we will also bear his glory. You have given grace to the, hum- to the humble, and you never fail those who fear you. Help us, Lord, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, and as we desire that men should do unto us, let us do first unto them. Help us to be a disciplined people for your glory and our good. Unite our hearts to fear your name and your name alone. As you have instructed us, we now cast all of our cares upon you, for you care for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.